How are we doing, church? Doing good? All right. If you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them. We're going to be in Song of Solomon, chapter 7. That, uh, that couple is Curtis and Sean Osmond. And uh, if you know them all, they're both deacons now. And um, Curtis outpunted his coverage something fierce, all right, which is the case for most of us. Uh, happy Father's Day, all the dads in the house. Hey, happy Father's Day. Yay. That's pretty much what you get. Sputtering applause, okay? Um, wives, if you didn't get your husband something for Father's Day, just apply today's sermon. It'll be better than a grill. You'll see what I mean as we dig in. Uh, and then this is going to be PG-13 plus, plus, plus. So if you're a kid in here, if you're not in middle school yet, run for the door, new gen doors. You go through right over there. They'll check you in. Or if you're in the sanctuary, go straight out the back. They'll check you in. There'll be parts of it that I will be uncomfortable in because we are talking about... Um, we're talking about maturing in our love, because the truth is that falling in love is so easy. I, I don't even really like the terminology. It's like an accident, like, oops, I fell in love, and now it's all over me, and maybe if I get it off of me, I can fall in love with somebody else. That's kind of how our culture does it, but falling in love is easy. I mean, what do you need to fall in love, right? A heartbeat and two eyeballs, and you can pretty much fall in love. Some of you love people you have never even seen. You just like their way they sound on the radio, and you love them. Some of you fall in love with the person on your row by the time this service is over, Okay. And in fact, in our culture, it's easy to fall in love. There's 1,500 organizations right now in America that exist to take your money and match you up with somebody so that you can fall in love. So falling in love, it's easy. But, but loving one another, like the Bible says, love one another over a lifetime, man, that takes a lot of work, doesn't it? It takes a lot of work. And so kind of the cultural norm is what J.C. talked about, not Jesus Christ, but Johnny Cash. We got married in a fever hotter than a pepper sprout. We've been talking about Jackson ever since the fire went out, and that's how a lot of marriages go. You got a lot of effort and energy up front, a lot of pursuit and response and dating, and you eat more frozen yogurt than you can haul away in a dump truck, and you watch all those ridiculous movies that you didn't want to, you know, those chick flicks that you didn't want to see, and, but you go anyway because you're pursuing her and you're chasing after her, and there's all of that, and go on the honeymoon, and woohoo, everything's great, and then a few years later, there you are sharing a Grand Slam at Denny's with nothing to talk about. And do you think that's what God designed for you in the direction he called, that, that he's called you to go as a married couple? Absolutely not. You see, our love is not meant to grow old and stale. Because the Bible says that God is love and God doesn't get old and stale. That our relationship with him is supposed to grow in knowledge and depth of insight. And therefore, our relationship as married couple is supposed to grow in knowledge and depth of insight. And so we're going to talk about today how to um, continuously mature in your marriage. And I can guarantee you this, it won't happen by accident. You will never neglect your way into a deep, abiding relationship with your, with your spouse. Um, I had some step-grandparents, and when I met them, they were already 100-something years old, I think. And uh, my, my, grand, my step-granddad, we called him Mr. B, and uh, he was, I mean, seriously, he was like in Sunday school with Noah, you know what I'm saying? He was an old guy, but he was, even though he was kind of getting old and frail, he was still studly in his, in his old age, played college football 100 years ago. He's a... 180-pound guard with a leather helmet for Baylor. That's where he played back in the day. And, man, he had such love and respect for Granny B. That's what we call my step-grandma. And, and she'd walk into the room, and when he was able, he would stand up, and he'd be like, well, get up. My girl's coming in. Like, yes, sir. You know, get up. And it was that kind of – it was awesome. They would hold hands and, you know, share a walker. It was awesome. And so <clears throat> they've been married 50-plus years, and right after Gretchen and I got married, I leaned into him one day and said, hey, Mr. B, help me out here, okay? I just got married and I want to be like you when I grow up. So how do you stay married for that long and it still be so awesome, you know? And he said, well, good marriage is like a duck. I was like, what? 
He said, yeah, on top of the service, you know, everything's nice and smooth and gliding along and under the water, everybody's paddling like crazy, all right? And so that is the truth. And what we're going to look at this morning is Song of Solomon chapter 7 is the ideal of what your marriage ought to be like and marital intimacy ought to be like. And we're going to hold up the Word of God today as the ideal and you are going to see your reflection in here. And what you're going to see is you're going to, just like we all did this morning, when you got up and you look in a mirror, you know what you think when you look in the mirror? Uh-oh, there is a problem, don't you? And now wise people, mature people, they don't blame somebody else for the problem they see in the mirror. You don't look at the bed and go, look at what the pillows did to my hair. No. You take responsibility for what you see in the mirror. And you know what you did this morning? You did whatever it took. You stood there as long as it took until you thought you were presentable to the public. And if you decide, I'm just going to keep it as it is, then we know who you are. It's kind of easy to see who you are. And so if you feel convicted of the Holy Spirit today because your marriage doesn't live up to this kind of ideal, well, that's the Holy Spirit working in you, pointing out the things in us that we need to change to be more like Him. If you feel condemned, then that is not of God because therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this, because I'm going to tell you, I've been married 14 years, and it's better now than it's ever been. And a, part, a big part of that is it's not, just, it's not just because I found the one, but because my wife and I are trying to be what the Scriptures has called us to be. Now, a whole lot of... T- we're going to talk about the bedroom a lot in a way that you've probably never heard in church. That's all right. This isn't, this isn't a normal kind of church, okay? And so... But, but well, you've got to understand here, because you'll you lose yourself in the bedroom. But the bedroom is actually just the thermometer. Their marriage is the thermostat. Their marriage sets the temperature, and the thermometer just reflects what's going on that, from what the thermostat says. So the bedroom, it just, it just reveals what's actually happening in the marriage. And fundamentally, it's this. He's going to pursue her, and she's going to respond to him. He's going to value her, and she's going to respect him. And as they do this, it's like two people that have been dancing for a long time together. And they're going to do it. They're gonna, it's going to show up in the context of the bedroom. So here we go. Um, it's chapter 7, verse 1. But actually, I want to back up a half a verse. Because you remember last week we talked about how to fight. And said, oh, marriages fight. People, you know, when you're married, you fight. Your marriage is worth fighting for. And when you get into a fight, you can either be right or you can be married. It's up to you. And so he has chosen to be married. They have chosen to submit themselves to one another. And they've made up, now they're going to make out. And so the last half of 13, like 13 and a half in chapter 6 says, Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? That's how the ESV translates it. But literally it, it says the dance of Mahanaim, which was a striptease. And so what's going to happen is they're going to go into the bedroom and she's going to undress for him. And I just want you to know that 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So if you're uncomfortable with that, then, you know, I don't know what to tell you. It's the Bible. Here we go. Chapter 7, verse 1. Here's what he starts with her. He says, how beautiful are your feet in sandals. Now, why in the world would he start with your feet? Because who likes feet? I mean, really. I know some of you weird people do, but I'm not talking about that. Okay? (laughs) Feet are kind of gross, right? I mean, if you're going to go in the bedroom and your wife undresses, you're probably not going to the feet. All she's wearing is her sandals. That's kind of weird. One of the things to point out, fellas, notice that he notices what kind of shoes she has on. I don't know why it's important, but it's in the Bible. Shoes are important to him. All right? So... And then he says, how beautiful are your feet? That's the grossest part. I mean, it's just gross. Even clean, well-pedicured feet aren't that awesome. But think about uh, uh, 
Hebrew foot 3,000 years ago. Have you seen the Jesus movies? It's like all that beach, no ocean. Everybody's walking around in flip-flops, kind of hot and sweaty and gross all day. And he looks at her feet and says, how beautiful are your feet? Now, do you remember where he started on their honeymoon a few weeks ago? He started with her eyes, then he went to the top of her head, and he said, your hair is like a flock of goats. And I promise it was a compliment. You got, if you weren't here, you got to go back and, and listen to why that was a compliment. But he said, your hair is like a flock of goats. And now, instead of starting at the top of her head, because on their honeymoon, what he did, he was going to start at the top of her head, and he was going to undress her and compliment her on the way down. And then his, uh, his goal was to go from head to toe, but then he got hung up at the equator, and he never made it out. All right, that's how it works. <laughs> that's what your honeymoon is supposed to be like, right? Sweet month, all right? And so now their love has grown deeper. Their love has matured. He knows things about her that he didn't know when they were first on their honeymoon. And that's how it's supposed to go, that your appreciation and your love and your compliments are supposed to grow and grow and grow in knowledge and depth of inside of your wife. There are things about Gretchen that I know that nobody else in this world knows. You know what one of my favorite things about her is? It is none of your business, okay? (laughs) And that's what's happening here. He is starting with her feet and he's gonna work his way uh, oh, noble daughter is what he says. He's saying, you're the queen. He praises her status. And then he says, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. Now, let me help you out here, boys, before you be like, baby, you've got legs like Maurice Jones Drew. Okay, you don't want to say that. You've got to be careful with your analogies, all right, as you try to work this out. <clears throat> so in this context, probably would have been accurate, you know, standard of cultural standards of beauty change over time. But In the remix, I would go with your slender thighs or like whatever you want to say, okay? But here, it says your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. That last little part, he's saying that you're like a masterpiece. That when God put you together, he knew exactly what he was doing. It's It's sort of remnant of what his dad said in Psalm 139. Solomon's dad said that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Husbands, you better memorize some Psalm 139. I mean, there's some foundational verses on what it means to be an image bearer of the Almighty God. That you were not an accident. And I hope and I pray that, when, that you have never criticized your wife physically. If so, you should come down from the, to the altar for prayer and we should hit you with a stick. Okay? In the spirit of Christian love and discipline. That's what we should do. Because what you're going to find over and over and over here is part of the reason that she wants to give herself to her husband is because every time she undresses, he speaks life into her. Do you see this? And he says, you, you, you are like a, you're a masterpiece that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Listen, especially if you're a dad of a little girl, you better be praying this over her. You better be speaking these words over her. I've got a four-year-old little daughter. Reagan Capri, and every night when I tuck her in, we pray Psalm 139, 14. Dear God, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And fearfully doesn't mean like God put you together and was like, ah, no, that's not what it means. It means like reverently. Like he spoke into existence all, everything, right? Sun, boom, there's the sun, earth, earth. But then when he made people, he stopped and he's knitting together people just the way he wants them. That you are fearfully, reverently, and wonderfully made. And then I, I have Gretchen, I mean, I have Reagan say, and I'm one of those works. I know that full well. You know why? She's four years old right now. When she's 14, I don't want, I don't want her thinking that, that the world defines where her value comes from. I want the Word of God to be just planted like an anchor deep in her soul. That she knows that she was created by the Almighty Creator. 
Because I know that she lives in a world, ladies, like you live in a world that says if you're not beautiful, you're not valuable. And then, and then it says beauty equals this picture that nobody can even attain, right? And everywhere you go, on every cover of every magazine, there's the picture. You drive down the road, the billboards, there it goes. You log on, there's the pictures. And the professional people whose job it is to look like the pictures can't even live up to their own pictures because they have to be photoshopped. And even though your wife knows that cognitively, because they're like, yeah, they photo If I photoshop, I look like that too, maybe. But <laughs> the matter. What your job is to do, what Solomon is doing here is he's speaking life into his wife. That's what he's saying. You're like a work of the master's hand. It's like Ephesians 2.10. If you sent your kids to Backyard Bible Club, they memorized Ephesians 2.8 about how we are saved. That we're saved by grace through faith. It's not our own doing. It's a gift of God. It goes on in 2.10 to say that you are God's workmanship. Literally, that means that you are a masterpiece. That God put you together that way. So what he is doing here is he's speaking life into his wife. Because you know what, husbands? Have you noticed how your wife is insecure about what she looks like? And she stands in the mirror and she, and she doesn't love the way she looks. And you know how I know this? It's because my wife is drop-dead gorgeous. I mean, she just is. She is. She's super good looking, takes great care of herself. Um, I just think she's drop-dead gorgeous. And there have been times where she stood in the mirror and wanted to criticize who she is. And that she's insecure about the way she looks. And I know husbands, you look at that and be like, well, that doesn't even make sense, babe. You look great. Why do you not think you look great? That doesn't make sense. See, husbands, you still think they use logic. No. <laughs> it's a daughter of Eve. They're a part of the, it's a part of the fall. I'm just telling you, every girl in here has these kinds of insecurities about the way they look. And so what Solomon does is he's speaking life into his wife. Are you speaking life into her? Because your words have the power of life and death. And so in my house, we don't have a lot of rules, but nobody criticizes mama physically, even mama. There have been times, especially early on, you want to talk about some awkward conversations early in our marriage, when Gretchen would stand in front of the mirror and make some negative comment about the way she looks, and I'd be like, hey, woman, nobody talks about my wife that way, even you. You understand? And she'd be like, you ain't my daddy. I know I'm your husband, okay? And I would... It would be awkward then, but what I was trying to establish is those words will not be spoken into my house. I don't want Gretchen's ears to hear those words come out of anybody's mouth, including her own. Because Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for the needs of building up the hearer. Just because something's true, it's irrelevant. You, you, you speak things that build up. And so what he does over and over and over is he's saying, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You are, you are a masterpiece. Is that how you talk to your wife? I'm telling you, by the time we get to the end of this text, fellas, when you see how she responds, you're going to say, man, I, I want a wife like that. I wish my wife would act like that. Maybe she would if you would speak to her this way. And that doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight, okay? I, I know some of, the, some of the girls we married, man, they got 18 years of recordings going on from being mistreated verbally. And then you get to step in, and then you just got to speak life and speak life and speak life. And maybe one day over time, their feelings will catch up with the truth of the Word of God that you are speaking into their life. And so Solomon says about his girl, you are a work of a master hand. Verse 2, your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat circled with lilies. Now, please let me help you here before you just have to sleep on the couch all week, all right? Some of you are like, now we're talking about my girl. All right, here you go. Baby, your belly's like a sack of flour. All right. So, it's not what that means. So, 
Culturally speaking, you know, things change. Maybe it was accurate, but he's saying really two things. He's saying, you know, your, your, your navel's like a cup of wine and your belly's like a heap of wheat. He's saying this, that there were two primary festivals where um, the Israelites would get together and they would celebrate God's gift to them. And in the spring, they would celebrate wine. That, that the wine that they had picked from, or the grapes that they had picked from the year before would have been fermented at this point and they would celebrate and they'd have this huge spring wine festival. And, and they believed that wine was a gift from God. And a part of what this celebration is, is how good is our God that he gives us things that we want. We don't need wine, but we enjoy it. Let me just say it one more time for you. You don't need wine, but it is to be enjoyed. And so they would see that the, that the rain and the crop and wine would be a good gift from God. They would drink the wine and they would celebrate God and they would worship God. And it was just to show God's goodness to his people. And then in the fall, they would have a festival where they celebrated the harvest of the wheat. And that was about how good is our God that he meets our needs because you have to have bread to live. And so thank God that he would give us this wheat. And so essentially throughout the year, the Israelites would praise God that he meets all of their wants and their needs. And that's what, that's what Solomon is saying here. Baby, you got everything I want and everything I need. I don't have to go anywhere else because everything I'm looking for is right here in you. And I see you as a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And as I look around, I know I have outpunted my coverage. So I look at you and I go, wow, there must be a God in heaven because he gave me such a gift. That's what he's saying. By the way, it reminds me of some verses that, that are in the New Testament in Ephesians. In Ephesians, the Bible says husbands should love their wives like their own body. You know what that means? If you're a grown man, you know how to take care of your wants and needs. Like if you're riding down the road and you get thirsty, nobody has to tell you you're thirsty. Nobody had to give you a hint or leave you a note. You just know, oh, I'm thirsty. And you know what you do if you're a grown man and you get thirsty? You pull the truck over and you go into the store and you meet your need. You know how to do that. You go in and you get something to drink and you get the right drink every time. Why? Because you know you. You know how to take care of yourself. And then in Peter in the New Testament, Peter says, husbands, Live with your wives as unto knowledge. That means that you are supposed to become a student of her so that you can learn to meet her wants and needs like you've learned to take care of your wants and needs. And some of you go, but pastor, she's complicated. Well, I understand. All right? I know. Wake up every day a little bit different. Don't give you a lot of good clues. That's fine. But you're supposed to become a student of her. I mean, you can figure out when the waves are coming. Then you can figure out the kind of things that she wants and needs. And so that's the kind of husbands that we are supposed to be. And that's what he is saying to her. He is saying that everything I want and everything I need, I'm finding in you. Now, by the way, just for information, because I got to tell you the truth. In verse 2, that word navel, you ready for this? That word navel doesn't really mean navel, okay? Remember, he's starting at her feet, and then he went to her thighs, and then it looks like he went up to the navel and then back down to the belly, Okay? It's actually about halfway between the navel and the rounded thighs. Everybody with me? Explain it to the people who went to public school, okay? And so uh, the reason is because the guys that translate the Bible are church guys. You know what I mean? They're afraid they're, I mean, they're in pleaded dockers talking about substitutionary atonement and double imputation and all this kinds of stuff. And so they're not putting that in the Bible, but that's what he's really talking about. All right, I'm going to move on. That's enough on that. Speaking of awkward, verse three, he says, your, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, right? 
I talked to you about, remember, on, on the honeymoon, he said this before, word for word. This is, now they've been married for a while, and he's going to go back, and he's going to pick up some language directly from the honeymoon, and he's going to say, your two breasts are like, are like uh, twins of a gazelle, or like two fawns. Remember, we talked about this. He, he's not calling her like a, a you know, woodland furry animal. He's, he's, think about if you were to go to the zoo and you see two little baby deer. What do you think? You'd be like, oh, they're so cute and playful and perky and I just want to pet them. <laughs> so what do you say? It's usually about this point that the men that are new to church start going, this? I knew I should have been reading this book. Yeah, it's in there. Now, here's why I think he's saying this, because what he's saying, he told her the exact same thing on their honeymoon night, and it may not even be altogether true, okay? I don't know if, if the, the two baby deer have grown up into mature does. I'm not sure exactly how, what's going on here, but essentially, you know what he's saying to her? He's saying this. He's saying, baby, you haven't lost a step. Like, I am just as in love with you. I am just as attracted to you today after we've been married for a while as I was on the day that we got married. That's why, listen, singles, that's why you don't have sex before you get married. You know why? Because what will happen if you build your relationship on the physical and you're not married yet, it will not sustain your marriage. It will not sustain your marriage. It's like pouring lighter fluid onto a, to a little flame. It'll blow up. It'll feel like heat. Yeah, it's great. And then the thing will just die away and there will be no embers there that will sustain you over time. Because if you build it on the physical, the physical will not be able to sustain it. Because let me tell you this, and I'm going to break some of your hearts. But the best your wife is ever going to look is the day you marry her. And it's downhill from there. It is. I'm just telling you. The day you propose, she's getting on a workout plan. All right? She's sweating for the wedding. I'm telling you, she is. And she's going to join ABP and she's going to do her burpees and her push-ups and she's going to cut all her carbs and dehydrate. And then on the day that she gets married, you know, a couple of days, she's going to get a spray tan. She's going to spend $1,000 on her dress or maybe more than she's wearing one time's worst deal in the history of humankind right there. And she's going to get a whole crew of people, eight girls are going to show up on the day that she gets married. The wedding's going to be at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and at 8 a.m. she's going to start getting ready. It's like a pit crew for NASCAR. They're going to get around her and change the tires and put new oil and everything they can. And I'm telling you, and when the door's open and she comes walking down the aisle, you're going to hear French horns and the light from heaven is going to shine upon her. And your lips are going to go boop, boop, boop. It just does. And that's the best she's ever going to look. And you're going to get to unwrap that package on your wedding night. Praise the Lord. And then it's over. It's going downhill. You crank out a few kids and PTA and run the carpool and clean the house and cook and have to put up with you, you know. And let me just tell you this. You ain't exactly the Tarzan you were that day you strapped on that tux either, okay? Beefcake. So that's just how it is. Now, <clears throat> If you're mutually submitted to one another and you love each other and you're serving one another, the attraction will never change, regardless of what happens physically. But man, if it's built on the physical, it's like icing. It tastes good, but you, it'll kill you. If that's all you eat, it will not sustain you. And so part of what he's saying here is, it's like, baby, you have not lost a step. I mean, I'm just as attracted to you. And, and think about this. This is like one of the most vulnerable things that she could do is undress in front of her husband. And again, part of the reason, you know, they're naked a lot in the Bible. I hope you're naked a lot in your marriage. Not just for hygienic reasons, but like for married reasons. 
And then whenever she disrobes, she walks into a safe place where he encourages and speaks life into her. I mean, this is the kind of woman that's like, let's leave the lights on. Why? Because he brags on her so much. I hope you're speaking to your wife that way. Verse 4, he says, your neck is like an ivory tower. Now listen, did that mean she looks like a linebacker? Okay. Because if you take all these compliments individually, don't put them all together, it sounds a little like Frankenbride, right? But <laughs> essentially what he's saying is that you're confident and you're elegant. Now remember what she felt about herself when they first married? She said, don't look at me because I've got a farmer's hand and I don't match the cultural standard of beauty. And now, now after he has spoken life into her over years and years and years, that she can walk into the bedroom with confidence and with elegance. And then he goes on to say, your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrobeam. Bathrobeam was one of the busiest intersections in town. It'd be like JTB in 95 Monday afternoon at 5 o'clock. You know, it's just pandemonium. And, and you got you to gotta understand that Solomon's world was that busy. I mean, he is the king of Israel. He's got deadlines and trade embargoes, and he's got people attacking him, and he's got to attack people, and he's got uh, diplomatic relationships with all these different countries. And he's saying, my life is busy, 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 busy. But when I get home with you, I can look into your eyes and I can lose myself in your eyes. The pools of Heshbon were these little like saunas or spas just off the sides of uh, the gates here. And so people would go there for like a little mini vacation and to relax. It's very similar to earlier when we talked about he told her that she was like a flower in Engedi. Engedi was an oasis in the desert, in the dry place. There was this one little place where he could go and he could be refreshed and relaxed. And what he's saying about the eyes of his wife is I can lose myself in your eyes. See, one of the greatest things that Gretchen does for me, in our context, she's a stay-at-home mom. I work a lot here. She works a lot. She works from home. And one of the best things she does for me is that she creates this little oasis when I get home. I mean, she just does. She just understands that I work a lot and I got a lot of pressure and I got a lot of stuff going on. But when I get home and I go face to face with her, none of that stuff matters. None of that stuff matters. I mean, when I walk in the door, I got an eight-year-old and a four-year-old, so they love me and love to come up. And man, when they come walking, you know, I walk in, they're like, daddy's home. And they come running. I'm like, get off me, right? And I go straight (laughs) bypass them because mama gets the first kiss. Mama gets the first words. Mama gets the first hug. And then after I give her a hug and a kiss, and I scoop up the babies and wrestle with them and play with them a little bit. Just the other day, this past Wednesday, long day, all my days were long, and I get home and the kids come and I go hug her and they come back to them and walk into the bedroom and there she is and she's ironing, okay? And so I, I go out to the living room and like, you know, I'm kind of a crappy parent sometimes, so I just cut on some like Nick Jr. so the kids will just be drawn to it like <laughs> and they can't move. Go back in the bedroom and just sit on the edge of the bed with the ironing board in between us. And we just talk. Talk. And for that, we probably talked for an hour. And guess what? For an hour, I didn't worry about one of you wretched black-hearted sinners in this whole room. <laughs> Nothing. Wasn't worried about the Winn-Dixie or the parking spaces or all the sin that we got to deal with in here or staff stuff. None of that. What are we going to do with all the growth and multi None of that. All It was just me and her. And, and it was like an oasis. And again, nothing physical happened or anything. She's ironing this shirt and some others that you'll see in the coming weeks. <laughs> but that's what, was hap- that's what he's saying here. And <clears throat> it's also 
It's also, by the way, while I take my wife out on dates. I mean, you know, I have a... Actually, my assistant makes sure that we hit the right number of dates a month. I mean, it's on her... You know, it's like, hey, do you have enough time to prep sermons? Do you have enough time to lead these meetings? Have you taken your wife on this many dates? I mean, that's a part of what we review every month because they're important to me because I don't want to just go shoulder to shoulder. Some of the reasons that your marriages have grown stale is it's been all shoulder to shoulder. The taxi service that you run is great. Um, the kids are bathed. They're in bed. That's great. Everybody's fed. The grades are fine. But it's just grown a little stale because it's been all shoulder to shoulder. And you've got to stop. You've got to get face to face. You got to go eyeball to eyeball here. And so I need some face-to-face time with Gretchen. And so we'll go somewhere. And, and we, we pregame it. We get together. Hey, is this just me and you? Is this a crowd? What are we going to do? Are, is it, are we people watching? Because, you know, that's fun, right? Like, yeah, he's fearfully wonderfully made. Look at that guy, right? That's what we'll do a little bit of that. <clears throat> and, and if it's just us, man, we'll go somewhere. We don't eat around here if we, if we want to just be us. We'll go to Riverside, you know. I don't know anybody there. Everybody's got skinny jeans and scarves and it's July. Like, what's wrong with you people? So I go in there in plaid boots and they don't have sports in their restaurants there. That's great because, you know, I'll just kept, I'll be tempted to watch them and we get in the little corner and just go eyeball to eyeball. And I'm telling you, I get tunnel vision. It's like everything else in my world just fades away and I just see my girl and I hear Dreamweaver, right? And I'm done for the night. It's just us. And that's what he's saying. So that's Guys, that's why you gotta that's why you gotta take your girl out. And girls, that's why you gotta help provide this, whatever it, whatever that looks like in your context. And that's why he says your eyes are pools in Heshbon, the, by the gate of Bath Rabin. Then he says, Your nose is like a tower of Leblon. All right, let me explain what this is. This is a you know, baby like Gonzo with a big old nose. Come here. So you know this is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. The tower of Lebanon was the um the picture of defense for all of Israel. It was in the it was in the wall. It stood up real tall and it faced Damascus, which was the enemy. And when people would see that, it would make them feel safe. Because they would say, man, I, I know that the army's got my back. I don't have to worry about that because they, they've got this under control. And so essentially what he is telling his wife is, I trust you because for all these years you have been trustworthy. And then he goes on to say, <clears throat> verse 5, your head crowns you like Carmel. Carmel is this, um, this mountainside and, and, it, and it's right on the coast. And it's a, it's a big rock face, got these trees on top and these rock faces on top. It kind of looks like a crown. And he says, your head crowns you like Carmel. It's the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful sights in Israel. By the way, the Bible in Proverbs 12, 4 says this, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Wives, do you realize that, that you are the crown of your husband? Do you know what that means? And think about this. Solomon is saying this. And Solomon actually had a crown. And he's saying, my kingdom is not the best thing about me. My girl is the best thing about me. Look, when I want people to be really impressed with me, I don't introduce them to our church. Because Jesus builds the church. I actually have very little to do with what's going on here. You know what I do? I want them to meet my wife. Because again, I mean, you guys get to hear us sing and, and lead us in worship. But man, if, if you knew her like I knew her, I'm telling you, she's the most amazing thing in the world. The most amazing thing. And if I really want to impress you, if I really want to impress you, I want you to meet her. Because you'll, you'll look at me and you'll look at her and you'll think, man, there must be a God. There must be a God. And, and quite honestly, that's kind of the standard on our staff. It really is. 
There's a lot of us. I mean, if I just think through, we've got, I think, four ordained pastors right now, and four for four. You look at Pastor Ryan Stone, and you look at Blair, and you go, that guy must pray well. I mean, he really, the Lord listens to him. Same thing with Britt and Ben. I mean, it really is true. And in fact, one of the biggest compliments you can give a man that loves Jesus, you can be like, man, how'd a bald-headed, fat, good-for-nothing dude like you marry a girl like that? And a guy will receive that as a compliment. He'll be like, I am kind of fat, ain't I? <laughs> Just do it, because you know it's the best compliment you can get. By the way, it does not work the other way. You can't be like, how'd a big old girl like you marry such a stud? Why you cry all the time? It just doesn't work. So he says, your head crowns you like Carmel, and, and your flowing locks are like purple. Talking about her hair, a king is held captive in the tresses. You know what a big deal? This is the sovereign king of Israel, the most powerful nation in the known world at this point. And he says, I might be king of this world, but I'm, a, I'm captivated by you. I'm enslaved to you. But sure, I've got all this. I'm the boss, and I've got all this responsibility. Yeah, that's fine. But I am captivated by you. This is what he's saying to her. Then verse 6, he says, How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Wives, can I just ask you a question? Are you pleasant? I mean, really. Are you pleasant? Because he says you're beautiful and pleasant. I, you, can't, you can only do so much about your beauty today. But you're in control of whether you're pleasant or not. In fact, let me give you a homework assignment. For the rest of this week, I want you to find somebody that you realize is married, especially like a mom with some kids, and just find a pleasant one out there. Like, go to the beach and watch a mom with her kids and find a pleasant one. Because most of the time, it's, stop splashing and bring the toys. It's just crazy, you know? Like, oh, goodness gracious. I remember one time I was in Walmart. So behind this lady. She had her kids, toddlers, and they were pulling all the candy off the aisle because it was right there at eye level, you know, because Walmart wants you to go to prison by beating your kids, right? So they put all that stuff right there. And she's all fed up. She just looks at her kids and screams, relax! I thought, they're never going to know what that word means, Ever. <laughs> And so let me just ask you, are, I mean, are you pleasant? Are you, are you pleasant? You see, because this is just like baseline Christianity. See, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You put those middle ones together, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you put that together, you know what that looks like? Pleasant. And so are you, are you pleasant? Um, it, when, when your husband calls you on the phone or you call him on the phone, is that pleasant? Or is it usually complaint or a list or when you get home and need you to beat the kids? Because I'm going to tell you, when your husband's at work or however it goes and you give him a call and he looks at the phone, if he has to quote, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All right, here we go. <laughs> if he has to do that, that's not good. That is not good. It's true. It's true. But it's not good. And I know some of you, some of you are thinking, yeah, well, I wish I had a husband like Solomon. I mean, I wish my husband would speak to me like this and pursue me like this and compliment me like this and take me on dates like this. Well, you know what? One of the things, I'll beat your husband up in just a minute, but you know what? One of the reasons Solomon acts this way is because she creates, because she's pleasant. Or like when he gets home or you get home or whenever y'all get home together, is it pleasant? I mean, is it, is it just pleasant? Is he looking forward to it? Or when you wake up in the morning, I don't know, some of you need like your IV of coffee and all that. Okay, whatever it takes, get there. 
And then, are you pleasant? And if you could honestly say, you know what, I don't, I don't think I'm very pleasant, then that's something that you should probably repent of now. Now. And go to him and say, I, hey, you know what, by the, by the blood of Jesus, the love of a heaven, heavenly Father, and the empowering Holy Spirit, I'm going to beg God that the fruit of the Spirit that's already in there, that everything that you need for life and godliness, if you love Jesus, is already in there. And that you would just start letting some of that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control get to the outside of you. And then, I promise you, maybe, maybe you, will, you will help your husband be the kind of husband God's called him to be. Because Solomon knows that when he walks into this kind of environment, he can say, you're beautiful and pleasant, Oh, loved one, with all of your delights. So he start, starts at the bottom of her feet. He makes it all the way to the top of her head. Now what he's going to do, uh, almost like a, a, a scanner at the airport, he's going to go from the top to the bottom, then he's going to work his way back down. But he quickly goes, you know, below the head and shoulders. Verse 7. This is great verses. I put it in your notes so you would know this is actually Bible verses. I'm not making this up. Husbands, you should memorize these. Put a poster of them in your bedroom. Ready? Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Praise God. <laughs> All scriptures God breathes. Amen? And profitable. Right? You used to be memorizing the Bible, people. Now, some people are like, well, what's the spiritual implication? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> this is just a husband enjoying his wife. Let's read it again. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. And some of you are like, why is my husband so obsessed with him? He's just biblical. Do you understand? <laughs> oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples. Brush your teeth, women. Okay, so now we've moved from just looking to kissing and touching. Verse 9, he says, your mouth, your mouth is like the best wine. And now, look what she does. He starts verse 9 and she finishes it. Like, like she doesn't interrupt him, but, but they are, they've, gone, they've grown so close. They're so intimate. They know each other so well. Is that she knows where he's going and she finishes the verse. He says, your mouth is like the best one. And then she says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. It's like a Miller Lite commercial, isn't it? You see, this is after they've been married for a while and it's not offense, defense. Like, he's not just trying to, to get his way, and she's like, well, I guess so. I mean, I am a Christian woman, and 1 Corinthians 7 says that my body's not my own. My pastor says it all the time. You know, no! This is like a dance between two people that love each other for a long, long time, and he initiates and she responds. That they are in this thing together. And then, and then she keeps going, and she says this in verse 10, I am my beloved's and my, and his desire is for me. She says, I'm going to fully give myself to him, and his desire is for me. That word desire means to be totally consumed, totally consumed. You know what she feels like? <clears throat> this is how she feels in their bedroom. He wants nothing and no one else but me. She does not feel like a sanctified prostitute that the husband's just coming in to get what he wants, to roll off, to go watch Sports Center when he's done. She feels like the most valuable thing in his world. Listen, husbands, there's a no-compete clause when you get married. Sure, you can have hobbies. You need them, okay? Play golf, fish, hunt, whatever you want to do. Surf, that's great. 
But your wife should never feel like she comes in second place to anything else. Not your job, not your friends, not your money. You can replace all those things. There's only one her. And so she feels pursued and valued. And husbands, don't you want your wife to respond this way? Well, a part of the reason she does is because he's pursuing her. And listen, gentlemen, I know you have what it takes. I know you have what it takes to turn up your A game and go after your wife and pursue your wife. Because you didn't get into this thing. I mean, I fell so head over heels in love with my wife. I just thought, I need about 50 more years of this. And I don't want to be like that old couple that's just sitting at the mall with nothing to talk about. No. Seems terrible. And just be committed till the end. Yeah, that's true. But man, you can have that. Because you know what? I found it as I pursue my wife, man. It's fun. I mean, I'm only going to make one run at this. I'm going to make as awesome as I can. And so... You know what tends to happen when you get old as a married couple? And I asked Gretchen to help me out with this a little bit. Men, what typically happens when you get old as an old husband is men tend to lose their creativity and, and women tend to lose their spontaneity. And men kind of just turn into like an old hunter. I mean, early on, man, you studied the game and you pursued the game and you dressed in the right thing and you went after it and then you finally bagged the game and then you mounted it on the wall and you ignore it the rest of your life. And you think, yep, yeah, but I'm, you know what, I pay the bills and I do the weed eating and she ought to be grateful. Oh. But, you know, one of the saddest things for a grown man is when that little boy inside of him dies. You know what's true about little boys? They're really creative. Really creative. Like this past week at Backyard Bible Club, I was there. My children ministry skills are not very awesome, so I apologize if your kids were at my site, all right? It was in love, but we run a tight ship. But if you ask the, all the second grade boys, and I know because I got one. Hey, boys, come on around here. Come on, come on. All right, sing and dance. Go. They will. Just right into it. All right, let's do this. And they'll do the big house with the motions and the whole thing, right? They get, they're, create, they're creative, and they don't mind at all. But if I were to get all the men, hey, stand up right now, boys, we're going to sing and dance. He'd be like, I'm not going to wrinkle my khakis. No. In fact, when I'm training preachers on how to preach, you know what I have the hardest time with? Creativity. Because grown men, they get doctrine right. They'll get theology right in the full counsel of God. The problem is you never hear it because you fall asleep before they get to the full counsel. And you've got it in you. You know how I know? Because you pursued her. I mean, I can look from here and know, and know you had to work hard to get her. To stick around with you for a long time. It's evident from here. And so don't lose the creativity. Continuously pursue her. And then wives, you can lose your spontaneity. I mean, as you get old, you can just kind of get crabby and not so flexible. And just check through your chore list. And show up to bed every night in flannel. You're like, flannel? We live in Florida. Are you expecting a snowstorm? What are you doing? Right? That's not the biblical norm. It's not the biblical norm. The biblical norm is that your love would grow and grow and grow. And so as he pursues her and as he comes after her, look what she does. She says, come, my beloved, and let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. You know what that means? She says, hey, let's book a night at the Sheraton. That's what she's saying. And then she says, let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded and whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. What time of year is that? Springtime. In their honeymoon, what time of year was it? Springtime. That your love is supposed to continuously blossom and bloom and grow. Now, sure, it has seasons, but they've been married for a while and it is still growing. 
that you did not get into, you didn't marry your girl because she would help you raise good kids and she could cook well. No. That, that you had a passion for her and you've got to continuously stoke that and pursue that. And when you do, she responds. And so what she's saying is, book a night at the Sheraton and let's go. Let me tell you something that you need to do for your marriage. First of all, you need to go on dates. You need to get a babysitter or drop them off with Nana, and you need to go on dates. And I've had some young parents push back on me and be like, oh, but we don't want to leave the kids. You need to leave the kids. You need to put that little Timmy right there in front of you and say, Timmy, the world does not revolve around you. Me and Mama are leaving you, and we're going to go. And they might go, well, we miss you. Well, we're going to miss you too. Not as much as we're telling you, but we're going to miss you. Bye. (laughs) They need to watch you and Mama walk away from them and have somebody else watch them for a little while. All right? You need to go on dates. And not only that, you need to do extended vacations that are just for the married people, just y'all, just, just husband and wife, and leave the kids. Get Nana or pay a babysitter or whatever. And, they need, and you need to talk about it. We are going to the most amazing place, kids. You wish you could go, but we are not taking you. And you need to go. Listen, this is 15 years of youth ministry. For 15 years, I worked with 6th through 12th graders. And let me tell you this. We've got a generation of 6th to 12th graders that are experientially rich and relationally poor. Because you've got them signed up for every camp and horseback riding and crossbow shooting and everything they can sign up for. And what you want, if you've got teenagers, what you want more than well-educated kids or kids with great experiences is you want secure kids. And the, most, and the most secure thing you can do for a teenager is let them grow up in a house where mama and daddy love one another because that's the most secure environment that they'll ever have. I promise you on that one. And you need to do both kind of vacations, all right? In my house, we do a Presbyterian vacation, and that means all the elect get to come. That's the kids involved too. And everything is preordained to stick to the schedule. It's usually Disney, and we've got it all lined out. And everybody goes, and everybody has a great time, and it's a fun vacation, all right? And that's our Presbyterian vacation. And then we have a Pentecostal vacation. That's just me and Mama. And there's a lot of speaking in tongues and laying on the hands. Amen? You know what I mean? And we got one coming up in a few weeks. We're going to Miami. No kids. Just us. And you need that. You need it. You need it. You need it. For your marriage. For your own soul. For your kids' sake. And then verse 13, look what she says. The mandrakes give forth fragrance. Now, if you knew what that meant, you would blush while you were laughing. A mandrake was like um, ancient Hebrew Viagra. That's what it was, all right? If you, if you Google image mandrakes in the Bible, put your safe search on or it gets weird. And a mandrake was a root, and when you pull the root up, it looked like a man, but not the head, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes part, okay? That's what it looked like. And then the women thought if they ate it, it'd get them all fired up. And so he's pursuing her and complimenting her. And she says, book a night in Sheraton. And then she says, oh, I smell some mandrakes. And boy, he is like, gas up the chariot. Here we go. That's how she's responding. The mandrakes give forth fragrance. And beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old. You know what she's saying to him? Say, baby, when we get to the Sheraton, you remember all throughout this, they've been talking about their love as a garden and their their sexual intimacy like a fruit basket sometimes. She goes, hey, we're going to get back into the fruit basket, and guess what? We got some fruits that we're used to, and then I picked out a few new fruits for you. (laughs) Man, you think this guy can't get the horses hooked up quick enough, you understand? It's an invitation to lead. That's what she's doing there. She says, which I have laid up for you, oh, my beloved. Here's the point. Here's the point. 
that your love can grow old or you can grow old in love. It's your call. That if you love Jesus, you have everything that you need in you for life and godliness. Everything. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And God designed you to grow in knowledge and depth of insight in your marriage as you grow closer to Him. And so if it's old and stale, I'm telling you, that's not the design of your marriage. Just like your relationship with God is not supposed to grow old and stale. And so you can grow, your, your love can grow old if you neglect it. You can grow old in love. It is up to you. Hey, I'm, I'm going to tell you. I know this is going to run some of you off, but I don't care. I've had more sex in the last seven weeks than any other seven-week stretch in our marriage. Can I get an amen? Amen. You, I don't care if you amen. It's amen for me, all right? Praise the Lord. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable, just, you know, there's 100 million churches in Jacksonville. You'll fit right in there, all right? But it's in the Bible, so we're going to talk about what the Bible says. And so, as I began to think about that, my first thought, because I'm so arrogant and selfish, I thought, boy, I'm preaching some good sermons. My wife must be taking notes and just, not just merely listening to the Word and so deceiving herself, but doing what it says, right? And in fact, there's a lot of you in the room, and you think, man, I wish I had a wife like that. I wish my wife would get some new fruits and, you know, old as well and, Tell me to book a room in the Sheridan. I wish she'd act that way. And we could t- men, we could tend to think that way. But as I was thinking about just my marriage, I began to think, you know what? I, it's probably not Gretchen. I, I actually, I think what's happening is, um, is over the last seven weeks, <laughs> almost every day I've been rooted in, the, in Song Solomon. And I've been preparing these messages on how to be a godly husband, right? And how to abide in Christ so that he can abide in you. And so that it's not about just me trying harder, but draw closer to Jesus so I can be more like him, so I can love my wife like he loved us. And I think the reality of what's happening is Gretchen didn't change at all. But I think, you know, wherever you put your eyes, you tend to drift towards whatever you're looking at. And as I've put my eyes on the Song of Solomon, I've just kind of drifted towards being more of the godly husband that God has called me to be. I've probably been listening more and been more intentional about my compliments and comments and pursuing more and valuing more. And then what, what my wife does is just what really any healthy wife that loves Jesus and loves her husband and is in a healthy environment, what they do. They say, hey, I'm my beloved's and he is mine. And so oftentimes when we talk about your marriage, you're all, we're, we're often so concerned about what the other person is going to do, but really what it comes down to is, is what are you doing with the covenant that you made? And so what you do is, you, listen, you draw close to Jesus. You draw close to Jesus. And that's the answer for everything. A few, few weeks ago, I'm coming out of an elder breakfast at Panera Bread. I'm sitting in my truck, and I see this old man open the door for his wife. And they come out of Panera Bread. And they come down next to my truck, and they're parked in the car right next to me. And I'm telling you, he's 253 years old. He's got to be, all right? And he's got his walker, and she's got a cane with the little four deals on the bottom, you know? And they're still holding hands as they go. And they walk and scoot all the way over here to, this, to their Buick that's right there beside me. And then he, he gets over, and he opens her door, and he helps her in. And then he takes her little cane and puts it over his walker and he scoots on around to the other side and folds his walker up and puts it in the back seat of their car. And then he gets into the car 
leans over, gives her a little peck on the cheek, and then they go. And I thought, that is, that man's my hero. That, that's the goal for my life right there. I thank God for what he's doing in our church. But Jesus builds the church. I'm called to love my wife. So that is my goal. And I know this. I mean, my marriage is going really, really well right now. And the only hope for it to continue to go in this direction is I have to continuously just come to Jesus. It's not try harder. That's the danger of this sermon series is you'll think, man, i got to try harder. No, 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 no. If you just try harder, it'll last as long as the series is. Next series is Ephesians. And so it's not as sexy as Song of Solomon, okay? But what will sustain you and what will sustain your marriage is that as you abide in Christ, then he'll abide in you. And all things are possible for those who believe in Jesus. And as you get to know him more, you'll be more like him and you'll love more. And you'll serve more. And you'll forgive more. And so for those of you that got great marriages, you just, you just keep coming to Jesus. And for those of you whose marriages, I mean, they're okay. You're not getting divorced or anything, but it's just kind of stale. It's just kind of stale. Well, the answer for you is to come to Jesus. To come to Jesus because he, he is the source of love. First John chapter 4 says this, that we love because he first loved us. So the way to be able to love your spouse is to love Jesus more and more and more and more. And the more, the more you love him and the more you receive his love, the more you're able to love your spouse. And you can kind of shake some of the cobwebs off because you cannot simultaneously love Jesus and not love your spouse. He won't let you. It's just impossible. And for some of you whose marriage is just, I mean, it's on the ropes. And nobody even knows, because you're at church, you've been lying to everybody, telling everybody it's fine, but you're not even going to talk when you get home and you haven't slept in the same bed in a long time. And you've even been to see a counselor, and secular counselors say, there's no hope, you should get divorced. Well, the reason they say no, there's no hope is because they don't know Jesus. Jesus is the only source of hope. And folks, we are in the miracle business. There's probably been half a dozen marriages that were on the, they were on the ropes on the brink of divorce when we started this series. And now they're saying, nope, there's hope because we have Jesus. And so if your marriage is there, guess what? You need to come to Jesus. And if you're single and you're alone, that's okay. If you're lonely, it's not okay. You need to come to Jesus. His grace is sufficient for you. If you've been lied to, if you've been beaten up, if you've been broken, if somebody broke their promise to you. See, you realize the invitation for us all Jesus liked to give some whosoever invitations. Whosoever is weary or heavy burden. If that's you, then the invitation from Jesus is come to me and I will give you rest. Give you rest for your soul. Now I've asked the band to close with a song and it's not even necessarily a worship song. The whole song's about Jesus. But it's not necessarily like a congregational singing song. We're going to put the words on the screen and I'm going to sing. You're welcome to sing along. And the point of the song is this, no matter where you are, no matter what situation you're in, the invitation is the same, is to come to Jesus because he's the only legitimate source of hope and of love and of faith. And so come to him. So would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that there are people in all kind of different situations in this room. Lord, I pray for the strong marriages here at the Church of 1122. God, may we... May we never get prideful or arrogant or think that it's our tips and tricks and sweet date nights that have pulled that off. But may we continuously, humbly come to you, the source of love. And God, I pray for the marriages that are just kind of stale. I mean, they're okay. Everything's happening okay, but they're just kind of stale. Lord, I pray that as we come to you, Holy Spirit, you would stir in us that consuming, fiery kind of love 
that we have for you that would spill off into our spouse, and we would love them that way too. God, I pray for the marriages that are just on the ropes and on the rocks, and they think there's no hope. Well, Lord, Jesus, as long as you're there, there's hope. God, I pray for miracles. I pray for covenant love. I pray that no one can unwind what you have won. God, I pray for single people in this room that they would find their hope and their peace in you. God, I pray that, that dating couples would get married in your name, in a God-glorifying kind of marriage. God, I pray for the people in this room that have been hurt and beaten and broken up. God, I pray for the people that have been lied to and abandoned and covenants broken. And Lord, I pray that every single one of us would just come to Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Hey, the altars are wide open. I'd invite you to come to Jesus.